Welcome to another episode of FinTech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson. I am the publisher of the FinTech Takes newsletter. And joining me, as he always does, is my friend and fellow newsletter writer, uh, Jason Makula. Jason, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. And uh, this is a very special episode we have for everyone today. Alex and I actually recorded it live last month at New York City FinTech Week, uh, where we took the stage at the Empire Startups event. Special thanks to John Zanoff and his team for putting together an amazing event. Uh, And we had a chance to discuss the future of consumer lending. Uh, And it seems like even in a month's time, plenty has changed. But we talked through some relevant topics impacting the consumer credit space, including the uh, macro environment, uh, buy now, pay later, of course, a perennial favorite, and the changing role of the credit bureaus. Uh, So stay tuned to listen to all of that and more on this very special episode. Um, we were going to start with macro. So yep. I uh, do not want to reveal my age, but my first job in lending was in 2010. Uh, and since then, we've been in a fairly benign overall sort of credit environment. Uh, pandemic notwithstanding, you know, obviously the rather large amount of stimulus uh, you know, buffered the worst of that for consumers, particularly lower income consumers, where you saw... Uh, NCOs, net charge-offs, actually improve over the course of the pandemic. Now, it clearly feels like we're at, at a bit of a turning point with inflation coming in yep. you know, at 8.5% last month. That particularly hits lower-income consumers harder as the cost of the essentials they need, you know, rent, food, energy, gasoline, are increasing. You know, that's going to come out of their budget somewhere. Well, simultaneously, we're also entering uh, the first hiking cycle since 2015-2016, and one that looks to be substantially faster. Last time, I think, between 2016 and the start of the pandemic, uh, increased to 2.5%. This time, it's looking like that'll be the case at the end of this year. So far more aggressive hiking cycle. Uh, You know, I bring up, you know, entering lending in 2010, like, not really experienced anything like this. I mean, yep. the closest uh, you know, minor hiking cycle in 16 kicked off some capital markets turbulence that saw major impacts on non-bank lenders at the time, Lending Club, now it is a bank, uh, Prosper, Avant, that saw their business models come under some stress. So I mean, I think sort of thematically, like that's going to color you know, some of the other topics that we'll talk about uh, and you know, certain business models that maybe made sense in uh, a 0% interest rate environment with consumers flush with cash, like we're going to see those come under stress and be tested in the next, you know, 6, 12, 24 months. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. And I think that, yeah, I mean, we will talk about buy now, pay later. That's its own separate topic. We'll get there. So don't jump the gun. But um, I do think to your point about business models, it will have this macroeconomic environment will have a big impact on sort of shaking out specific business models that worked in one part of the credit cycle, but might not be well optimized for working in another one. And you know, I think from a consumer standpoint, and sometimes we we sort of get a little removed away from what the impact is going to be on consumers. But you know, to your point, a lot of people have run out of some of the excess funding that they had during the pandemic. Um, a lot of people are sort of in the process of getting back into the economy, either full-time or part-time, in terms of generating income. And 
you know, I think the changing rate environment is always this very turbulent moment where you know rates are going up. I think mortgages hit five percent, right, um, for a thirty-year fixed mortgage. And at the same time, deposit accounts are not yet coming up in terms of providing yield. And so it presents this really interesting sort of moment in time where I feel like consumers are still going to be a little more risk on in terms of looking for yield. Um, and that might manifest in terms of crypto and Web3 and NFTs. It might manifest itself in sort of the continuing of the meme stock economy. They're going to look for yield in places that might be a little riskier largely because they have to, but at the same time, the cost of borrowing is going to go up significantly. And I'll be very curious to see how fintech companies in particular, both on the deposit side and on the lending side, adjust to that moment of turbulence and try to help consumers through it because it's going to be rough for a segment of consumers that have been sort of living on the edge in that kind of, I guess, more friendly lending environment that we've been in. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the areas that could prove particularly interesting. You know, you mentioned uh, deposit rates. You know, given the glut of savings at sort of mainstream, you know, consumer banks, uh, I think you're right that we're going to be slow to see those rates go up. Yep. Uh, I think my former employer, uh, Marcus, is paying 50 bips, and yep. you know, I wouldn't anticipate that that changes. Yep. Does it provide an opportunity for, uh, you know, neo bank fintechs? to use higher rates as a loss leader and attract customers that perhaps previously they couldn't. Yep. No, I think that's an interesting space to watch. Um, on the debt side, the part that I'm most curious to see is how some of these sort of novel product formulations, you know, beyond BNPL, but also uh, some of these non-recourse cash advanced products like a Dave or a Money Lion, yep. you know, how do those perform as borrowers' budgets become stretched? Yep. You know, what does their payment hierarchy look like in this sort of new world where uh, you have perhaps a number of different kinds of debt products um, with different incentives and different consequences for, for paying or for not paying? Yeah, I, I think that's such a good point. And the, the consequences for paying and not paying is going to lead into another topic we're going to talk about, which is the credit bureaus and furnishing data. But you know, if you think about buy now, pay later, and maybe this can be a nice segue as we get into that topic, but I think it's a good example of what you're talking about where you know, when we went through the last uh, big recession, we definitely, and, um, I, I worked at FICO previously to, uh, to writing a newsletter, and um, one of the things that um, they sort of found out at FICO during that window of time was that people's hierarchy of repayment had shifted since the last time we'd really seen one of those types of environments. And you know, in that particular case, given what was happening with the housing market, people were defaulting on their mortgages before they were defaulting on their car. And the logic was, you know, you can sleep in your car, but you can't drive your house to work, right? So that was the mentality at the time and sort of the dominant repayment hierarchy, which doesn't matter when everyone's paying their bills, but when people have to make strategic choices about where they're gonna default, understanding what that hierarchy looks like is super important. And to your point, there are so many new credit models that are in the market today that I don't know that we know what the repayment hierarchy is going to look like when those consumers come under stress. And you know, it fits into this other larger trend that I think will be really interesting, which is which fintech companies are well positioned to earn that repayment from customers. Mm -hmm. And it relates to 
the length of time that they've worked with those customers, the overall value proposition and what they deliver to those customers. It'll relate to the breadth of products that they offer to those customers. And so I think we'll see some very interesting differences in terms of repayment to different fintech companies based on the nature of the relationship that they've built over the last five to seven years. I mean, I think one, one last point on this is, you know, the importance of uh, collections or a curing strategy. Yeah. You know, the other endless axiom of uh, consumer credit is it's very easy to give money away. That free is the money. easy part. Yeah. The hard part is getting it back. And I think that something that is, you know, new or different as we sort of enter this cycle is some of the surveillance and payment mechanisms that lenders potentially can deploy. Mm -hmm. So as far as, you know, using bank account transaction data to see, you know, when is money coming into this account? How much? When should I be timing ACH debits? uh, To, you know, even sort of more novel products like payroll-linked lending, where the repayment is coming straight out of that uh, employee's payroll process rather than hitting their depository account first. Yeah. So I think you're going to see more uh, development in this sort of some of these strategies that, that you know, didn't really exist in 2008. Yeah, I mean, from a collection standpoint, to your point, there are so many more tools in the toolbox today than there were before. And I, I mean, just a you know, prediction, I feel like the CFPB is going to have some things to say about the collection strategies employed by lenders that are under pressure. Mm-hmm. as some of these uh, macro environments change. And I think that brings us to the next topic, which is um, buy now, pay later. I promised we'd get there. Uh, Jason and I have hours worth of content on buy now, pay later, but we'll, we'll condense it into a few key thoughts. So you know, to start with, from my perspective, one of the big trends that we're seeing play out right now in buy now, pay later is the use of these buy now, pay later, particularly paying for loans, as a bridge to building relationships with customers, right? And um, you see this play out in different ways. A firm has a strategy that starts with merchants and sort of a negative customer acquisition cost model where they get paid to take on these customers. And now they're trying to expand into, uh, I think as a crypto, they already offer high yield savings, which might become a more attractive product as rate go up. Um, they're gonna be launching a debit card that has a pay and for functionality built into it. So they're trying to sort of bundle themselves into more of a full service bank with these customers who, from a credit quality perspective, tend to be a little more on the sort of middle to upper end, uh, particularly for the point of sale loans, where they kind of specialize. And then by the same token, you also see the more sort of uh, near prime to subprime to credit invisible pay and for buy now, pay later providers that are also using pay and for as a wedge to build relationships with customers and to start gathering data but their model is very, very different um, because those customers are not necessarily going to be customers that are either going to use a lot of their banking services if they offered them or would necessarily be a good risk for more sort of expansive longer-term loans or other lending products. So you start to see companies like Klarna pivot to more of a shopping model that's based on driving leads for merchants and monetizing through affiliate fees. Um, and just different ways of sort of driving commerce activity and building sort of a full-stack commerce ecosystem. So it's not financial services specifically, it's more financial services adjacent. And I guess, Jason, the question I have for you is, as this macro environment changes and as these credit cycles turn, and we're already starting to see pretty high loss rates from a lot Mm -hmm. of these companies that are reporting them, how do you think those different business models shake out? What do you think the impact is going to be? Yeah, so I mean, the... 
there's a couple of different ways this plays out across the sort of two product segments you itemize, right? Yeah. So you have, you know, sort of the Affirm, original Affirm model, which is a credit underwritten loan yep. uh, for, you know, a higher dollar amount over a longer term versus paying for, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I would want to be in the pay and for business exclusively right now. The sort yep. of, uh, I call it like monoline, buy now, pay later company. <laughs> yep. Um, because you have a lot of different pressures. You have uh, sort of secular downward pressure on your merchant discount rate. Yep. So as that space is sort of blown up and become more popular, more competitors entered, what they're able to charge merchants has declined considerably from, you know, as high as 7 or 8% to something that's more like, you know, more comparable to a typical credit card credit charge card. of, you know, two or 3%. Mm -hmm. So you're already seeing downward pressure on revenue, while at the same time, there's the potential for their cost of funds to increase as the rate environment changes, and uh, in all likelihood, uh, risk of their, you know, charge-offs increasing. Yep. So they're kind of getting hit on all sides on that model, which is why you see a lot of this effort to uh, diversify or augment the offering. So a firm's decoupled debit card. Yep. Klarna has a comparable product in the UK uh, that, that essentially is a charge card yep. uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, you know, Klarna trying to monetize their open banking infrastructure they built for their own underwriting. Yep. Um, and at the same time, uh, you have this sort of exogenous threat coming from the CFPB, which kicked off the uh, sort of market information exercise, I think it was in December of last year, Yep. Um, which, you know, if you read the questions that the, that the CFPB sent to the six or so BNPL companies, they focused heavily on issues like underwriting. So how are they underwriting, you know, these products, uh, fees, uh, and repeat use. Yep. Um, so it's unclear, you know, exactly what's going to come out of that. Uh, but I think if the rhetoric... Uh, on some of the other uh, regulatory topics du jour or any indication, yeah. you know, even if there isn't a specific rulemaking, which, as we know, could take you know, six, seven, or eight years, like the payday rule, yep. um, you know, the rhetoric and the authority under UDAP you know, could be brought to bear on some aspects of the existing you know, BNPL business model. Yeah, well, and I think that's the point about the regulators not waiting for rulemaking, I think, is a good one. I mean, if anyone's been paying attention, the CFPB is not waiting around. They're doing regulation via blog post. Um, there was just a big um, suit that they brought against TransUnion, which we'll talk a little bit about when we get into the credit bureau part of this. But I think that you're right. I think they're going to take a really hard look at BNPL. One of the things that did strike me, though, about the... Um, sort of announcement of that information gathering exercise is that they did also talk about the relative virtues of buy now, pay later compared to credit card, mm -hmm. uh, more so than I would have thought for someone who is kind of taking a more critical stance on it. And so I do think there will be a discussion that plays out, and it'll be interesting to see how the macro environment layers over this, where certain products work better for consumers in different macroeconomic environments, right? And one of the things that's interesting to me about paying for in particular is because it's such a short-term uh, loan, and it is a loan, but because it's so short-term and the dollar amount is so small, it doesn't have the same sort of macro threat to the economy that other lending sectors do, right? If someone stops paying back their Klarna buy now, pay later loans because they lose their job or they can't make it a payment, 
Klarna, maybe not right away, but eventually they'll just shut the tap off on that customer. So they have the ability to control their losses and to shut those down quickly in pay and for relative to other types of lending where you're taking a bigger overall credit risk. The flip side to that, though, and this is kind of where the business model part comes back in, is reminds me a lot of um, peer-to-peer lending back in 2015, 2016. There is no way to make money at stasis, right? This isn't a lending category where you can make money from interest. And the ones that charge fees, they don't really charge fees as a revenue driver. It's just sort of downside protection. Mm -hmm. And so you can't make money if you're not growing. And I think that's the sort of existential threat to the Klarna's and Afterpays and even firms of the world is if that borrowing slows down for whatever reason, their revenue goes down. And there's really not an easy way to get out of that apart from the diversification that you're talking about. And they're just not that far along from a diversification standpoint. So from my perspective, where we get to on buy now, pay later in terms of diversification is going to be really important because when that environment changes, a lot of those things that have been uh, tailwinds for them are going to slow down. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's right. And, and you're already starting to see some of the impact from that uh, as far as consolidation in the space, yep. right? I mean, Zip scooped up QuadPay and Zezzle. Yep. Um, you know, Klarna's made a lot of acquisitions, although not other BNPL players that I'm aware of, but trying to diversify more the diversification. Mm-hmm. Um, Goldman bought Green Sky, if you want to call that BNPL. Um, so I would anticipate that, that as some of these businesses come under stress, um, you know, for this collection of reasons yep. that you see, you know, that continue to accelerate. Yep. Totally agree. Do you want to hit credit bureaus real fast? Yeah. I, I can't believe how fast this time goes by. I, mean, I, I think the, the perfect segue there is, you know, reporting novel product configurations like BNPL to the bureaus yep. um, and sort of you know, the opportunities and risks there and then sort of how that impacts both consumers uh, as well as companies, lenders that are using that data to underwrite. Yep. So, I mean, the story in BNPL, you know, the bureaus, all three, have sort of committed to being able to ingest this data. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, haven't actually seen many of these BNPL companies come out and commit to say that they will furnish it, which is an entirely different thing. It is. Um, but there remain questions about, you know, okay, this is a very different kind of product as far as, you know, it's not a monthly payment cadence. You know, how it's configured and reported could appear like, say, uh, a new credit card line with 100% utilization that's get, ugh, that gets closed <laughs> after, like, six weeks. So there are, you can first the data, yeah. but that doesn't tell you how sort of standard models like FICO or Vantage or all of the proprietary models that are in use will interpret that data. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, you know, Equifax versus Experian had sort of opposite takes on what the impact to consumers would be with, I think, Equifax saying, you know, they believe it's going to be a positive uh, to credit scores yep. and Experian saying the opposite. Right, right, exactly. One, it's, it's why Experian created their Buy Now, Pay Later Bureau, which is separate from the regular credit file that they're keeping. And it's because they don't want it to accidentally harm people's files. But then, yeah, you talk to Equifax and they're like, nope, we studied it. We did a joint study with FICO. We looked at what the overall net impact would be and it's positive for consumers. And so it is a really tricky question to figure out. And to your point about scoring models, you know, the, the thing that's challenging about the credit bureau credit scoring space is that... Um, not all of these models move in sync at the same time. And so, you know, FICO 9, which is still not 
in widespread use in the industry was FICO's attempt, among other things, to account for the boom in online lending, where people were stacking up loans to refinance credit card debt and then taking out more debt. And they basically made an adjustment to the model that would make it more difficult for um, people to get sort of a boost in their credit score from that behavior. And that was their response to a novel product in the market. Well, okay, that was seven years ago, right? And FICO 9, which they rolled out to address that, still isn't in major use. And so I think an interesting question is even if the bureaus adjust to buy now, pay later, which they now have, hopefully they'll start getting data furnished to them. Where does that roll into the models that lenders use? And obviously they have their own proprietary models that they can adjust faster. But for things like the FICO score, Mm -hmm. the next version of the FICO score is still a ways away. And when it comes out, we're years behind it being adopted by a mass portion of the market. So I guess that that segues to another thing that I'm curious to get your take on, which is the alternative to relying on these models, which we're starting to see from fintech companies, is the reliance on cash flow-based underwriting, right? And that is a very different way of understanding consumers' uh, ability to pay, not so much willingness to pay, mm-hmm. but ability to pay. And um, as you alluded to earlier, we now have all these new mechanisms for aggregating this data. We can look at people's payroll. We can look at their bank account data. We can calculate income. We can, we're getting smarter about calculating income across different sources. Mm-hmm. We can look at the history of that and see how it's fluctuated. But ultimately, I think cash flow-based underwriting is still relatively new in terms of its use in the mass market. What do you see around that model? Any, any concerns or things you might... Think might shake out from that. I mean, the you're absolutely right. I call that my my Frank Rotman ism. It's like there's a difference <laughs> between having the money, having the ability to pay, yeah. and having demonstrated the willingness to make those payments. Yeah. Uh, and so when you look at something like cash flow based underwriting, you know what what segment is that potentially the most useful for? You know, somebody with thin file or no file. Yep. Probably not a solution to somebody who has a demonstrated uh, inability or demonstrated unwillingness to pay based on you know major DROGs that they have on the bureau. Yep. So, you know, have we seen how these types of models that rely only on cash flow data perform through a cycle? No, we haven't seen that. Yet. Right. Right. And I think that's going to be something that's really interesting to watch. You know the. Com- you know, some of the BNPL companies use that cash flow-based data. Klarna does, yep. uh, at least in the EU. And of course, companies like Pedal, uh, credit card startup. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how how do those companies perform, how do their loan books perform uh, as we go through an economic cycle. Well, and that's to say nothing of all of these other fintech companies that are sort of on the verge of getting into lending and seeing kind of what that looks like. I mean, I I sort of in my head have nicknamed this the cash app problem, or I'm sorry, rather the the chime problem. Cash app got an unfair hit there. Um, You know, the chime problem is is an interesting one though because that's a very big base of customers that are generally pretty happy with the services that they're getting. And there's a little bit of kind of credit building on the edges, right? And we've seen a new proliferation of these credit building products that are in some ways designed to sort of get around how the bureaus collect data in order to help people build credit files. I think that's great. I think that's a positive impact for customers. But we don't know how those customers perform yet from an overall credit standpoint. And so the, the interesting question, particularly as we transition into a new sort of macroeconomic cycle, is... How are consumers who are maybe thin file or no file or just starting to build credit through some of these credit builder products going to perform? 
uh, given that they really have no long demonstrated willingness to repay? I don't know that we know the answer to that yet. Well, and I think particularly, you know, a lot of a lot of fintech, particularly in the neobank segment, has been aimed at that audience that has been historically, you know, poorly served yep. by mainstream, you know, mainstream banking, particularly, you know, overdrafts, NSFs, maintenance fees. Yep. Um, and it's great that you know companies like Chime and Vero can serve that audience with a transactional product, but we haven't seen a lot of success in cross-selling into a lending product. Um, and I mean. Based on my experience working in sort of the subprime space, you know, it's those customers' trajectory is not necessarily linear. Like, I'm going to get them on Chime, I'm going to get them a credit builder card. You know, they're going to become a near prime customer and take an auto loan, and their NPV is going to be awesome. Like, there tends to be a lot of volatility up and down. Yep. Uh, and I think that you know that's going to be something that's particularly challenging for the Chimes and Veros. Uh, you know, to figure out how to successfully lend to that audience. Mm-hmm.